God, uh, speak to our hearts this morning and uh, move in us. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that you've written, that you've given to us. I pray right now for children in Bolivia that, Lord willing, will be touched by people in this room and the things that will happen in these walls, that eternity would be changed, that you would make a difference in the homes of those children and that you would transform not just children but mothers and fathers and not just a family but a community and perhaps a country. And God, that you'd use uh, just a little us, and that's so unique and so special of how you like to do that. Whether it's a boy with five loaves and two fish, or whether it's uh, a couple stones to kill a giant, that you use little things, and I pray you'd use us in a special way to make a huge impact, um, because we're faithful. And Father, I pray you'd speak into our hearts this morning about uh, where our hearts are at with you. And God, please transform and challenge us as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a really light question today. Uh, what's the greatest sin... That's easy, right? What's the worst sin that you could imagine? What's the worst sin according to the scriptures? What's the worst sin in God's sight? What's the worst sin maybe you've ever heard of? I'm sure we've seen some terrible things, uh, whether it's a movie, whether it's something you read in a newspaper article, you've watched a news clip, and you might start thinking about it. Those of you who know the Bible and you automatically start filtering through the Bible, you might think of the top 10. So what's the worst sin? Well, lying? No, I've done that once. So that can't be it. Uh, what about maybe theft? Theft's pretty bad. I'm not sure if it's the worst. You think of corporate CEOs who've maybe taken some money from the company and then they ruin the futures and retirements for so many other people, but, but murder's got to be up there, right? But then if you start to think about it, it's got to be worse than murder because they're serial killers. And so people that would actually systematically, programmatically kill people like objects as a game trying not to get caught or maybe trying to get caught, that's messed up. But also, have you ever seen the stories where somebody has a child abducted and the child gets taken and your heart, my heart goes out to those families. They feel so helpless. And, and then somebody takes that child, oftentimes uses and abuses the child and then discards them like a, an item or sometimes kills them awful sins. What's the worst sin? And let me make it more personal. What's the worst sin you've ever committed? And for some people, you think, oh, you didn't ask that question. I don't want to think about that. And some people, it's a secret that you still hold. Maybe you hold from your spouse. Maybe a secret that you hold from just people in general that you meet, because you think if they ever knew this about you, then you'd surely be rejected. But as you begin to think about your worst sin, and maybe you compare it to the other list, you'd certainly think to yourself, but I'm not a serial killer but I haven't raped anyone or I haven't done, and you fill in the blank with whatever it is, kidnapped and done whatever you think might be the worst possible sin. What if I told you this? You are guilty of the worst possible sin. So you don't know me. You don't know. Well, think about the New Testament. What does the New Testament say is the greatest commandment? To love God with everything we are. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 22. Somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in verse 38, he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Then doesn't that logically stand that if that's the greatest commandment, then, then the greatest sin would be to fail to do this? And we've all done that. All those other sins that we talk about are just an outworking of this, of failing to love God supremely above everything else, to love him more than we love, fill in the blank with whatever faults God we place in our lives. Our marriage, our ministry, our reputation, money, sex, power, you fill in the blank with all the things that we oftentimes put above God. We've all been guilty of doing it. And it's expressed in the way that we treat others. If we loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved our neighbor as ourselves, we'd never lie, we'd never steal, we'd never murder, we'd never do any of those things because we wouldn't want that done to us. You see, failing to love God with everything we are is the greatest possible sin. It's what R.C. Sproul calls the great transgression. He says it like this. Uh, we should be terrified by the fact that God calls it the great commandment. 
Therefore, in the logic of the New Testament, the great transgression would be a failure to love God with all our heart, strength, and soul, and the failure to love our neighbor as much as ourselves. That's the great transgression. That's why we're all exposed to the wrath of God. And that is why God had to do the greatest act of compassion and take action for us in sending his son, that while we were yet sinners, the worst sinner. Christ died for us. But it's this very sin that stops us from experiencing real compassion. And that's what we're talking about today, is real compassion. God expressed real compassion towards us, but us experiencing real compassion towards others. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I invite you to grab a copy of the scripture. If you don't have one, there's some over here by the door. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 through 37. And it's part two in our series that we started last week called Compassionate Christmas. And last week we defined compassion as your pain in my heart. It's when you hurt, I hurt. When you mourn, I mourn. When you're broken, I experience some of the break. And we talked about how God had compassion on us and that in our greatest need, in our greatest pain, he met our greatest need and sending his son, Jesus Christ, because he was moved, not just moved emotionally, moved to action to send Jesus for us. But see, it's that worst possible sin that hinders us from experiencing that towards others. And what we're looking at in our passage today is a guy who's guilty of the worst sin ever. And it stops him from experiencing real compassion. I'm just going to read through the passage with you. I'll make some comments as we go. It says, on one occasion, verse 25, Luke chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And so Jesus apparently was teaching. It was customary that you'd sit down teaching at this time. And this guy stands up. So if some, everybody's sitting down and one person stands up, everybody looks. And he, he says this to Jesus. It seems very respectful. Teacher, he asked, what must I do? Not what must people do. This seems to be a genuine question. Not what must one do. But personally, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to experience life forever with God? It's the most basic and most important religious question that anyone ever asks, and we all ask it. How, how does this happen, Jesus? You're a teacher, and who is it that's asking the question? We'll go back there. This is an expert in the law. Some of your translations uh, may say that there's a lawyer here. This is a lawyer, not like that you'd see defending a client or prosecuting someone that they thought was a criminal. This is a lawyer in the sense that someone who studies the law, but the law that we're talking about is God's word, the Mosaic law, the Bible. So this guy studies the Bible a lot. He knows the Bible really well. In fact, this is a guy who would wear Bible verses. Have you ever met people like that? They wear Bible verses. Maybe it's on a little bracelet. Maybe they got a t-shirt, like witness wear t-shirt. You drive by them. Maybe when you leave today, lots of them on the road today with bumper stickers, Jesus bumper stickers. You ever seen those? Two hands, two nails, four given. It's Jesus math, by the way. If you see that stuff, like you see a bracelet, says John 3.16, you see somebody with a shirt on, it's got a cross on the pocket, or you see somebody with a Jesus bumper sticker, even like the secret fish, you know, all that kind of stuff that's out there. You assume, well, they go to church. You might even assume they're probably a Christian. This guy had the outward appearance of those things. Only he didn't, they didn't have like cool slogans back then. They didn't have fish at all. They had you know, little t-shirts for people to wear. They were, you know, the kind of the society for everybody. Jesus was still living his ministry, doing his ministry here. But what they do, those people that study the Old Testament and were really devout Jews, they'd wear Bible verses in what was called a phylactery. A phylactery is a little leather box. They'd put it on their wrist, wrap it around their forehead. They were taking a verse from the Old Testament very literally. Inside those boxes would be verses of scripture. But what those boxes communicated to everyone else is, this guy loves God. This guy's righteous. This guy says he loves other people. He's an expert in the law, and ironically, look at the question Jesus asked him. What is written in the law? Well, if anybody would know, it'd be this guy, right? 
And then Jesus gives him some freedom to even explain his answer. He says, how do you read it? Give me your interpretation of the law. The man answered, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you something. This is about as easy of an answer this guy could have been at. Any question that Jesus could have said back to this guy, and I love that Jesus answers the question with a question. <laughs> Whenever I see people do that, I always think, they're so in control. <laughs> you're, you're getting questions. You're asking questions. How do you do that? And so he's brilliant. He's Jesus. But he's, he's got this thing figured out. And he asked this guy, but it's the easiest question you could ask. It'd be like asking a kid in Sunday school, you know, a question that answers with Jesus, which, by the way, they almost all answer with Jesus. You know, Johnny, who made the stars? Jesus. <laughs> Johnny, who died on the cross? Jesus. Johnny, you didn't hear my question, but what's your answer? Jesus, that's right, you know. It's like, that's always the answer in that situation. And he asked this guy, what's written in the law? Jesus himself answered this question. We read it in Matthew chapter 22. He probably knows that Jesus, that's what he teaches continually. And, and the guy says, basically, what's in the phylacteries? See, there was a, a prayer that they had called the Shema. They would quote Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. You can look up the whole thing on your own. This is a portion of it here. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And then he takes a verse from Leviticus, which would be the law. And he adds to it, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts them here as one commandment, by the way, notice. It's not the first and second commandment. Here he says, this is one, here it is. This is the commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. And then look what Jesus says back to him. You've answered correctly. Ding, ding, ding. You got it, man. So he knows the answer. He's all set, right? It's, it's not the answer most of us would give, but Jesus gives it in the gospel more than one time. This is how you have eternal life. What is he saying here? Because we would say things like, well, you need to receive Jesus as your Savior. Uh, you, you need to bow your heart before him. You need to, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, believe that he died for your sins, rose from the dead, and call him Lord, confess him Lord. And so why does Jesus say this? Is this different than what we're teaching? No, it's not at all. What he's saying here is, yes, it's true. If you did love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you'd never break any of the commandments, and you would be perfect. Think about it. If you loved God above everything else, you'd never have a false God. You'd never put another God before him. If you loved your neighbors, you loved yourself, you'd never lie. You'd never steal. You'd never murder. You'd never do any of the things that sin against another people. You'd never sin against God. The problem is, none of us do this. Jesus is the only one that ever did it. So Jesus says to this man, do this and you will live. And the tense that he gives here is to continually do this. Do this now. And do it all the time, continually, forever. The right response from this man would be to say, I can't. I've already failed, and I know I'm going to fail again, and to fall on his face at the feet of Jesus and beg for mercy and beg for grace. It's what you and I did when we came to salvation. I sinned, and I need a Savior, and we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. That would have been the right response for this man. Instead, he falls into a trap that many of us fall into with our sin. He tries to justify himself. Look at the next verse. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to explain why he wasn't really guilty of this sin. He wanted to explain why he really does love God and he really does love his neighbor. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is a debate tactic made famous by our president, Bill Clinton. Could you redefine the term, please? What does is mean? What do, what do you mean by neighbor, Jesus? And if I define neighbor specifically enough to fit my life in the way that I already live, then I won't be guilty of sin. And, and let me give you a little heads up as thinking biblically, especially over the next probably five to 10 years and how you're going to see things happening uh, with different social issues that are, that are out there. If we can redefine sin, then I won't feel guilty. 
And it's you guilt-mongering, shame-mongering Christians that are so narrow-minded that are making me feel guilty. And so if you just stop saying these things, then I wouldn't feel so bad. That's essentially what this guy's doing in this passage. Before we get judgmental and think that's right, they shouldn't treat us that way, uh, don't forget we do exactly what this guy's doing in this passage of Scripture. He's basically saying, and I could get into a whole bunch of the background, we won't do that. Basically, the only people that Jews had defined neighbor as essentially people just like them. Other Jews, but not just other Jews, other Jews who would wear the phylacteries, other Jews that would go to church, other Jews that would be righteous. And so I love people that are like me. Anytime we limit who we love or limit the amount of love that we're willing to give, we've done the same thing. And so when we say things like, I love them, I just don't like them. Really? You love them enough to ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. That is great biblical love. True love is this, you laid on your life. I understand. Yeah, 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 I'm supposed to love them, but I just hate them. So I'm just going to say this. How about this one? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Do you really love the sinner if you never spend any time with them? Do you really love the sinner if you make no effort to demonstrate that love to them in service? They're catchy cliches that make us feel justified in our true heart condition. This man had a heart issue. And he asked Jesus this question, and rather than Jesus telling him the answer to his question by giving him a definition, Jesus does what a master teacher would do. He tells him a story that will then reveal to him his heart. He's not trying to give him uh, a demonstration here of what it looks like to have someone qualified enough to be your neighbor, to love them. And he's not, he's not trying to do anything here other than show this man what his heart condition truly is. He's not trying to encourage him to go out and just do a good deed either. Don't miss that. And so what Jesus does is he tells a story to prick his conscience. And isn't it true how powerful stories are? We love movies. Can I tell you a little trick as a preacher? If I'm up here preaching and uh, I look over and I don't think you're looking at Bible verses on your phone, I think you're checking your email, like you're bored, okay? Or you're dozing, it happens, believe it or not. And I know this too, it's not just all of you that know this. And uh, you're dozing off or you're just kind of distracted and people aren't paying attention, maybe stayed up late watching the game last night, whatever deal. If I, this is the phrase I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'm, it's like a story. I remember a story. I want to tell you a story and all the heads go, woof, like everybody, a story. I want to hear, give me the story. Well, what Jesus does here is he tells a story. It's one of the most famously told stories in all the Bible. And what he shows in the story is that real compassion takes action. And, and that's our main point today. That real compassion takes action. Real compassion does what it says. It practices what it preaches. It puts up or it shuts up. And see, we saw last week that God's compassion took action for us. And what he's showing here is that if we say that we love God and we love our neighbor, then that compassion takes action for other people. And see, compassion is more than just a feeling that we get. And we can talk about it. It's a very emotional word. And so it touches our emotions when we talk about this kind of topic. But it's more than just emotions. It's action. I, I remember last week I was sharing with you how different people are moved by different things. Remember I asked you the question, what is it that moves you? And you think about it, and I, I told you the analogy, and it's true, but uh, what happens is oftentimes my wife and I watch a movie, and she'll be bawling, and I'll be thinking to myself, well, I'd like some more popcorn, like this is entertaining, you know, what's going on here? And uh, you could think I'm like a robotic, no, no emotion inside human, but there are things that move me, they're just different things. And it's usually based on how you're wired, life experiences you've had, different things, there are things that, that move me, and you think about the things that move you, I told you one of the things that moves me is when, when kids don't have food. And some of that comes from my experience. I grew up poor. I knew what it was like. To, my friends always had more stuff than I had. Uh, single mom, she's on food stamps. We always had food. And so when I hear about somebody who doesn't have food, that's an injustice. And the emotion I go to isn't usually crying. It's usually anger. I, I get, I'm just like, that's wrong. Like, just don't. 
That's, that they should have food. Like there has to be. And here's what I didn't tell you last week. Um, God's done his part. Statistically, there's enough food in this world for every one of us to have over 2,700 calories every day. God's provided the resources. The issue is a stewardship issue of getting that stuff out there. Now, if I hear about a two-year-old who wakes up, doesn't have any food, and I'm upset, and I'm angry, or I'm crying, but I do nothing, I have not experienced compassion. Empathy, sympathy, maybe, but not compassion. Because compassion takes action. So when you turn on the TV and you see some kid with flies on his face and a bloated belly and you change the channel because you don't want to watch that, you might as well say, I don't want to hurt with you. But what you're saying, you maybe feel bad for a moment, but that's not compassion. Compassion does something. And that's what Jesus is telling this man in this passage. Listen, you say you love God. You got the verses to show it. You got the look for it. You know the right answers to the questions. But what would you do in this scenario? And Jesus tells a story that's perhaps the most famous story ever told out of the Bible. And you've probably heard it before. And let me tell you a little trick a seminary professor taught me when I was in school. Whenever you come to a Bible story, read it like you've never read it before. Pretend like you've never heard anybody explain this before and come to it fresh and let God speak to you through it that way. And so I'm going to read this, verses 30 through 35. It's a story you've probably heard before, but try to read it like you've never read it before. So in reply, the guy had asked the question, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he went into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And the verse 31, a priest, hope, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, all right, maybe second chance. When he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but contrast, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, same as everybody else so far, but notice this about this passage. In this parable, all the weight's given to all the action that's done. Notice how many action words I'm about to read, how many verbs there are and what I'm about to read in comparison to how many words we've read so far. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, so he stayed the night, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper to look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you. He gives him a blank check for any extra expense that you may have. And so here we have this terrible story, really, where there's somebody that's traveling, which would be not a wise thing to do anyways, that's traveling from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. People knew this was a dangerous place. It'd be like if I said to you, uh, there was a guy in New York City at midnight that decided to cut through an alley and there were a bunch of dumpsters. You'd know something bad was about to happen. That's what this road was like then, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho was about 1,300 feet below sea level. The road was less than 20 miles long. And so you can imagine how steep it was. It was windy, twisty road with rocky edges. So it'd be like hiding in dumpsters. There were caves there. And people knew that it was dangerous. And that's where crime happened. In the 5th century, a historian, Jerome, said that this was known as the bloody way. As late as the 19th century, you still had to pay money to travel on this road to local sheiks as a safety tax. (laughs) You heard of the mafia? That's what this is like. So everybody who heard this knew this was a dangerous journey. And so this guy's traveling down this road and he gets jumped. Some robbers see him. They want to use him for their own ends. They see him as an object, like many times we objectify people. 
And so they, they take what? Go back to the verse if you have it. Because when we get robbed, don't they ask for our watch or our wallet? They ripped off this man's clothes. To me, that just seems extreme, like they're abusing the guy. But you got to remember, this is a different time than now. They didn't have a closet full of clothes back at home. Clothes were incredibly valuable. And so they rip off this man's clothes. They beat him to the point that he's lying there dead, dying, half dead, it says in the text. So bad that he's not crying out for help. He's probably bleeding from his mouth, perhaps bleeding from his ears. It's clearly a distressed situation. It's awful. Then verse 31, a priest. If anybody's going to help, it's a priest, right? Here's hope. As Jesus is telling the story, now there's a glimmer of hope for this man. Because a priest is the person who goes to the te- at the temple and offers sacrifices for everyone else. He's a guy who would wear verses, by the way. He's a picture of someone who loves God and loves his neighbor picture of piety, a churchgoer. And the priest sees him and then goes out of his way to not help. Goes to the other side of the road. Who would do that? That's so appalling. Let me tell you, you can Google uh, different stories if you want to look this up. I read a couple this week. This has been happening for thousands of years. This is not a unique story. A lot of times when people are robbed and beaten and left, other people don't want to inconvenience themselves. They can go come up with all kinds of reasons. There's lots of reasons, but they don't help. I read one story this week about a guy in uh, New York City. He saw a woman that was being held by knife, and he got into a skirmish. His name was Hugo Taliax. Hugo got into, he was an immigrant, got into a skirmish with the guy that had the knife. The woman took off running. The guy stabbed him in the side. He fell down on the ground. The robber ran off, and there's about a 15-minute gap between the time he got stabbed And the time that the fire department came, he died. What's disgusting about the story is that, and you know this is true if you've watched much news, almost everything's caught on video surveillance today. And they had those 15 minutes on videotape. In the meantime, 18 other people came by and saw him. No one called the authorities. No one did anything to help. One guy did come up and take a picture of him with his cell phone. There was one man that came up and shook his body when saw the blood. He took off. And so to look at this priest in this text and think no one would do that, that's not true. A lot of people would do that. To prove that, Jesus tells about the next guy, a Levite. Now, a Levite would be like a lay leader in the temple, in the synagogue. He would be an assistant to the priest, but he'd have another job. He would not get paid to do that. He would but be somebody who would love God and love his neighbor, would claim to, would know the right answers. And so the Levite comes and, and he passes by on the other side too. He does the same thing. Now, these guys probably had a lot of excuses on, on why they would do this. In fact, I read different commentators this week that would tell you the excuses. Like a Levite, if, if they touched a dead corpse, then they wouldn't be able to serve in the temple for a week. They'd be considered ceremonially unclean. And so maybe that's why. And, and some people even believe that if the shadow, uh, if your shadow touched a dead corpse, then, then you'd be considered unclean. So maybe that's why they went to the other side of the road. And I read that and I think, but no, he's traveling from Jerusalem where the temple's at to Jericho where many priests lived. He's already served in the temple. Ah, but maybe that's his excuse. He's spent so much time serving other people. He just needs to get home and have some me time now. He just needs to be with his family now. It'd be so costly, so inconvenient to let someone die. Would you help? And before you answer, because I think most of us would go, well, of course we wouldn't walk by someone dying. How many people socially are left on the side of the road to die in our, in our society 
and we know about it. We see him, just like the Levites saw him, and just like the priests saw him. We know that it's out there. 500 million children aborted is the estimated number. Do you do anything about it? Not does your church, not does some organization that you like. What do you do? Or do you go by and walk on the other side of the road, change the channel, pretend like it's not happening? Think about the things that happened. The concentration camps. That was in somebody's neighborhood. And you didn't know what was happening? Or you chose not to pay attention? That's our generation. What about women that are abused? What about people that have AIDS, modern-day lepers? What about children that are at risk? What about sex trafficking victims? What about all the people that are cast by the side of the road in our society? What do you do? Because it's your actions that prove what's really true. Not the verses you know, not the answers you give. What do you do? Because compassion takes action. And that's why Jesus tells about the Samaritan. But contrast, here's where the story takes a twist, but a Samaritan. Now, uh, to you and I, if I say good Samaritan, we get an idea. Samaritan's Purse is a, a philanthropic organization, the Christ-centered organization, the humanitarian. They're helping people. They're good people. If you read a story on Google, it says a good Samaritan. You expect an act of kindness. If you told this lawyer the phrase good Samaritan, he'd think that was an oxymoron. Nice Nazi. Terrific terrorist. Affordable health care. Those words just don't go together, right? Good Samaritan. Those words didn't go together to him. That doesn't make sense to him. And so when you hear Samaritan as a listener to Jesus telling this story the first times, if you've never heard it, what you hear is awful. In fact, when Jews were trying to find the worst words they could use to describe Jesus, they said in John chapter 8, they said, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? They're synonymous, essentially. Like, it's the same thing. Jews had a prayer. Uh, God, at the time of the resurrection, don't remember the Samaritans. Leave them in the ground. We want them in hell. That's the sentiment towards Samaritans. And then Jesus tells this scandalous story. But a Samaritan comes along. And then he gives an exact description of the kind of compassion that God had towards us that we talked about last week. He saw him. Remember, God's the God who sees is the first title that's given to him in Genesis chapter 16 with Hagar, the first character in the Bible that gives God a title. Is You've seen my pain. Exodus chapter 3, God sees the oppression of his people and he hears their cry of misery. Jesus in the Gospels, he looks out at a large crowd. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Protects and guides and comforts and heals and is willing to lay his life down the very things this Samaritan is about to do for this man. He looks into the eyes of that widow, the eyes of poverty that we talked about last week. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And he saw her. He sees people like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. That phrase literally means like a woman who's beaten and raped and left at the side of the road to die. That's what God sees when he looks at our need. And that's what this man sees here. The Levite saw the need. The, the priest saw the need. But this guy sees it like God sees it. Because the next phrase says, and he took pity on him. Many of your translations probably say he had compassion on him. What Luke, the physician, the Dr. Luke who writes this, is saying is that it's the strongest Greek word possible for compassion. He's moved in his bowels. There's a movement of emotion. He feels the pain of this person. The same as when Jesus looked in the eyes of that widow who was about to bury her only son, and he, his heart went out to her. Same word. Same word that's used in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son who goes off and his father thinks that he's died. And then he sees him in a distance. And he says he had compassion on him. He runs to him. It's the kind of compassion that moves us, not to emotion, but to action. And then that's what the rest of this text says. Look at what he did. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he saw the man. 
and he had compassion on him, pity on him, and then he went to him. He goes to the guy, and he bandaged his wounds. Now, remember, the guy doesn't have any clothes on. He's totally naked. Remember how valuable clothes are. Where did he get bandages from? He probably tore off his own sleeve. Probably took cloth from his own head covering. Perhaps tore his own garments. So he saw him and he bandaged him. He does first century first aid, pouring on his own wine and his own oil on this guy, which would be antiseptic and anointing oil. Then he put the man on his own donkey, so now he has to walk. He took him to an inn. He took care of him. He's doing the things that a shepherd would do for a sheep, that Jesus would do for us. The next day, he took out two silver coins, his finances, and the two silver coins would pay enough money for someone to stay, depending on how nice the inn was, somewhere between three weeks and two months. So it's not a small amount. And he gave them to the innkeeper. He gave the money to the innkeeper, and he looked after him. And he said, then here's a blank check. You think about the impact this one guy had. And I could talk to you about how the one guy had uh, impact and the fact that this guy that was on the side of the road might have been somebody's husband. Uh, I could elaborate on why he was a leader in the community. The reality is these are not real people. So the Levite had no excuse. The priest had no excuse. The point Jesus was making was they saw the issue. They did nothing. The Samaritan was a figurative person that's supposed to express to us what love for God literally looks like and you love your neighbor and do the same thing that Jesus would do for us. And so it's not a real character in this story. It's a point that's being made to try and reveal our own hearts. But you think about how many people this good Samaritan has impacted as the story has been told for hundreds if not thousands of years in churches all around the world. And the ripple effect that that's then had in impacting other people. How many people have gone out and said, that's, well, that's how we're supposed to love, then I'm going to love like that, and I love someone else. And, and the ripple effect that one person can have. I told you that uh, this past summer I went on a trip with Compassion International, and on that trip um, I learned about the organization, learned a lot of stuff about them. One of the things I learned is how the organization started. It actually started with one guy who was a pastor, Everett Swanson. And he was a pastor in South Chicago and went on a mission trip to South Korea. And while he was on that trip to South Korea, he ended up seeing extreme poverty. And he was telling everybody about it. He went there. He would see boxes on the side of the road in Korea. It was cold outside. He'd open the boxes, uh, and inside he'd find dead bodies of children lying on the road. Because they were street kids. They didn't have anywhere to stay. And he met these children and started to get to know some of these children and knew real poverty. I told you how when I went to Ecuador, I came back. I'm calling my wife and saying, you wouldn't believe the poverty here. It's not just they don't have meals and they don't have education. They don't have opportunity. They don't have hope. They have no vision. There's just an emptiness. They don't have what they need to have. They don't know what they need to know. They're, they're lacking. And that's what Everett saw in South Korea. And he came back to America and he started telling people about how he saw this. Until finally someone went up to him and said, Everett, you keep telling us about all this poverty. What are you going to do about it? And it was like he got smacked in the face. But that's when the vision for Compassion International was born. And then that first year, um, rather than him trying to fix the problems all by himself, Instead, uh, he took the gifts and abilities that he had and used those uh, for God's glory. And that first year, in 1952, they sponsored 35 children. Today, they sponsor over 1.3 million children. By sponsor, what I mean is they take children that are in needy situations, they're living in poverty, they don't have the gospel, and they connect them one-on-one with people like you and like me that have resources because we were born, and that's what we did. We were born into a country uh, that has resources. And so there's a stewardship issue that's taking place. And now there's, uh, yeah, last week I told you over 400 kids trusting Christ uh, a, a day. And I've got newer numbers. They're a little bit lower, actually. But the newer numbers from this past year I got yesterday, it's uh, over 340 kids, though, trusting Christ every day. 
people hearing the gospel. They're getting the gospel. They're not just getting food. They're not just getting medical attention. It's happened because one man had a vision. What do you do? One person. You might think, well, this global hunger and all these problems and AIDS and unborn children, what am I going to do? I'm just going to live my life and do my... Well, you can make a difference in one person's life. And you know what happens then? It's a ripple effect for other people. And it really ties right into the vision we have as a church. A little over a year ago, we began praying God would multiply our impact in this city. And so we start talking about, well, how's that going to happen? Well, we invest in one person, and we bring them into the kingdom, introduce them to Jesus Christ, build them up to the point where they can reproduce themselves. And if all of those people have one person they're trying to impact, and we talk about having your one and reach 10 people over 10 years, then the ripple effect is when you reach one person, then they go back and they tell their friends and their home. And whether they live in New York or Colorado or here in Raleigh, and it impacts a ripple effect of multiple people. I saw this when we were visiting. I told you when we were in Ecuador, one of the things we did is we visited homes. I told you about a couple of the homes that we visited in Quito uh, last week. One of the homes we visited was in uh, the jungle in Ecuador. And I think we actually have a picture of that house. Here it is. The, the guy, the father in this home actually built this house with his dad 25 years earlier. They don't make them like that anymore, do they? He built it with his hands. Uh, there's a family of eight that lives in it. Notice it's on stilts. That's because it's close to the Amazon River or a break-off part of the Amazon River. And when the water rises, they don't want to float away. And so you can see it's even wet out there that day. It was raining, and we went in and that home and met that family. It was a family of eight. There's a baby on the way. So there are five children. They're walking around and playing there. Two of the kids were boys that were in the program, the compassion program. And so we're asking them questions of what it's like. They have to trek 30 minutes through the jungle to get to this church uh, where this program's at. We asked them, you know, how long would it take us to go? <laughs> you wouldn't make it, was essentially what they told us. I was thinking like 45 minutes, like what's going to happen? We went out with the dad. We took machetes out. We were doing some farming. He at least let us think we were doing some farming with him. You know, we're hanging out with him, talking to them, talking about how the family came to know Jesus. And God had saved every person in that family that we had talked to. And what happened though that day is it started raining really hard and the river was rising. And so we had to run out to get in the canoe that we were in. (laughs) It was crazy. And when we were going on the way out there, I talked to one of the leaders from Compassion. His name was Paul. And I said, Paul, there's five kids in this family, but only two are sponsored. Are the other kids jealous? He said, no, because what happens when one kid gets sponsored in a family is now they've got hope because what happens is that one kid goes to the program. Sometimes they bring food back and they'll bring the things they learn back and they come back and they tell them about Jesus when they hear the gospel. And that's how that family had come to Christ. And he told me a story of a little girl in Tanzania. Her name was Hope. She was the first daughter of the fifth wife, and there was a polygamous community. And so this man had five wives, and so she was the fifth wife was the mom, and so that's the least important wife. And then her first child was a girl, which is very disappointing to the dad because a boy can work and he can't get anything for a girl until he marries her off and he gets the bridal price. And so he's got to wait until he can marry her off. Ironically, she's named Hope. But the way that compassion works is that since they work through the local churches is that a pastor comes and a pastor gets to decide which children are in the program. This family has like 24, 26 kids, I can't remember. And he picked Hope. Hope went to the program heard about Jesus Christ, began to learn how to read, comes back, starts to teach her family how to read, starts to tell her family about Jesus Christ. Her mom trusts Christ. Multiple of the other moms have trusted Christ. Many of the siblings have trusted Christ. The dad's yet to trust Jesus as far as the last I heard. It's a ripple effect. You impact one life. You think about all the other people you can impact. It impacted me. My wife and I, we already sponsor a child in Bolivia. And so I was, I've never even thought. We get the letters for her and we see her picture. I didn't think about praying for her family. But then if her dad would come to Christ, the impact that could have, the impact it could have in a community, it's the, it's the same as our vision here, but there. And then you might think to yourself, well, Scott, why are you talking about our church sponsor in Bolivia, by the way? If you were in Ecuador and there's needs all over the world, why Bolivia? Well, 
When I was in Ecuador, I was sitting in an airport with these leaders from the Compassion International, a bunch of other pastors, and we're just waiting for our flight to come, and, and we're talking to each other. And I asked the lady who plans trips for people all over the world. So they work in 26 different countries. I said, Patricia, I know there's needs everywhere. But I was thinking South America, perhaps we could go visit at some point and meet some of these kids as folks from our church. And I said, if we we're going to pick a place in South America, which one has the greatest need? And I said, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, uh, different places. I just listed off like five or six different places. And without hesitation, she said, Bolivia. I said, oh, it's the poorest of the South American countries, Bolivia. It's a beautiful landscape, but this oppressed. Bolivia, on average, average family, uh, makes $900 a year. Think about that for a minute. Less than $100 a month. You think some of you are teachers, educators, I know a very educated community. Only 25% of children in the urban area in Bolivia graduate from high school. They're required to go to school until fifth grade. Many of them drop out in third grade. Uh, the student-to-teacher ratio there is 344 students to one teacher. Think about that. But you know their greatest need? They need the gospel. They need Jesus. I think about the impact that we could have as a church. If we just had 100 kids there, I think about the impact that that could have. And today is a special treat for you. Um, I want to introduce you to a child, or a former child, she's a young lady now, um, who was sponsored by Compassion International. So I've got a friend of mine here, Kiwani. You want to come on up here? Her name is Kiwani. You can call her Kiwi if you meet her after the service here today, because we can pronounce ki kiwi easier, right? <laughs> Kiwani uh, grew up in the Philippines and was sponsored uh, at Compassion International and changed her life. And so I wanted to, she was able to come to our home last night. We get to know her a little bit better and share her story. And wanted to share her story with you as much as she was able to. And so Kiwani, would you mind telling us, tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the Philippines since the culturally is different and the situation was different than many of ours. Um, before that, I would like to say hi to you all. <laughs> Good day, y'all. Y'all. Southern. And it's my pleasure to be here. And I would like to tell you about my country. I know you've, you've heard from the news about the great storm who struck the Philippines. We joke around before, like, in, in the Philippines, it's just hot and hotter and mm -hmm. all of the typhoons. Mm -hmm. I grew up in um, the southern part of the Philippines where my family... My dad is an alcoholic. He would always be drunk every day. Due to that, he can't provide for a good meal in our family. And we would settle for rice and salt, rice or soy sauce every day. And even like my mom, she would um, give up her meal just to feed me and my sister. Um, there are three brothers ahead of me, but because of um, we don't have money to send my mom to a clinic to have prenatal care. So three of them died. I was blessed to be alive, but the situation that I was born to, it was really difficult. In the Philippines, it's always flooded, and me and my sister, sometimes we would wake up, and our bed is floating in flood. And it's not the typical flood here in America. It's pungent, it's dark and smelly flood. And growing up in that situation, having no food enough for us, I would think, What's more? How can I go to school? How can I finish a degree? How, what's life for me? But you know what? God is very faithful. My dad works in a hotel as a, as a waiter. He picked, when he was working one time, he picked out a track on the floor. And then he read the track, and he, it says there that you need to go to this crusade. And then he went to the crusade, and at that time, he received Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior and learned that Jesus loves us. That's awesome. And then, so what did your mom think? 
your dad finds this little gospel, which I love. I was telling her last night that part of my story was mm-hmm. a gospel, a little booklet that told about Jesus, and that's how your dad came to Christ. So she, he comes home, and what is she thinking now? When he came home, he was sober, <laughs> and then my mom was like thinking. So that was weird, right? <laughs> it was weird for my mom, and he, she was thinking, what's wrong with my husband? Was he demon-possessed or yeah. something? And then the other day, again, he came home sober, mm-hmm. and then my mom was asking him, what's wrong with you? Because mm-hmm. they, they, my mom told us that they were in the verge of getting separated because he was always drunk. But he told my mom, I found Jesus. I, I g- gave my life to him. And now we went to this church. Mm-hmm. But when, we, um, when they received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, our condition didn't change. Mm-hmm. We're still poor. We still don't have food to eat. But the condition of our heart changed. Mm-hmm. And at the age of seven, when I was a kid, I would think, why other kids have food to eat? Why other kids have clothes to wear, nice clothes to wear? What's wrong with us, like me and my sister? I know that Jesus loves us, but what is happening? And at the age of seven, a, a person in Australia picked out a packet from the table and decided to sponsor me. And wrote letters to me saying that God loves me, encouraged me. And I went to a, a program called Compassion. And the teachers in Compassion, they would tell me, you know what, Kiwi, just hang on there. Because it's in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says that God has a plan for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is not your destiny. God has something better for you that only with you it will be perfect. So we trusted the Lord at age of seven. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and trusted him that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Mm-hmm. So we went to church and we're just so happy to be discipled, me and my sister, and just went ahead with like a life that is full of hope. Yeah. Now we are able to dream dreams and just hang on to Jesus Christ. And you told me last night you got to meet your sponsor. Which was great. I mean, a lot of times she went to meet to Australia, actually, because she was sharing her testimony with compassion. But a lot of times, like we saw with Dan and Ange, the the sponsor comes to see you. What did it mean to you to meet your sponsor? It means a lot to me. When I finished high school, I thought, how am I going to go to college? We don't have money. Mm -hmm. But we prayed, and we prayed that God will make a way for us. And in the Bible, it said he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. So I was able to go to college and finish uh, a degree. I'm now a physical therapist. It means a lot to me to see my sponsor and to just tell them how grateful I am because they changed my life. I was able to dream dreams and I was able to hope because of what they did. And now I'm standing here. I'm an adult and my future, uh, matured Christian able to realize my dream because of them, because of what they did. And I just want to thank them. And you sponsor. And now, <laughs> because of that, I was released in poverty in Jesus' name. And I was able now to sponsor a little kid in, in the Philippines and just giving back of what the blessing of God has done to me. If you were going to challenge us uh, with any thought, what would, you, what would you want to share with us? I don't know what kinds of situation that you have right now, but God can make it able for you. And he blessed you so much that you are here in your church, um, freely praising God. But I believe that God has blessed you to be a blessing to other people, to, you know what, 
God didn't just change my life. He changed my family's life. And now my mom is a pastor in a small community church. And it's just amazing to know that God would use us to change other people's life. And if you um, decide to sponsor, one day your sponsored child will stand up in front of other people testifying how great and good our God is because of you guys. I'll tell you, one of the things I learned when I was on that trip too was uh, how meaningful, obviously the money, $38 a month makes a difference and all those things, but how meaningful the relationship is, the connection. And you, Kiwani, you could, you'll get to meet her on the lobby if you would like to talk with her. She's got letters, the ones that weren't destroyed in flood. She's got her first letter. She's got her last letter that she got from her sponsor. But that connection with somebody that's telling you that they, Jesus loves you, that he cares about you. And if you were here last week, you probably saw the video where there's the one young lady who shared uh, her story that her family didn't love her and they didn't treat her well. Uh, but to hear that from someone, so the impact, the potential impact you can have. Kiwani, I'm going to pray for you and then uh, let you go out in the lobby and, and I'll talk to everybody for a couple minutes to give you a second to get out there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Kiwi, for the work that you've done in her, for the work that you've begun in her and the work that you'll be faithful to complete. And I pray that you continue to use her to impact people for your son, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saving her at the age of seven. Thank you for saving her dad. Thank you for changing that whole family. I pray you'd use that family and that community to bring people to your son, Jesus. I pray for us. Um, that you'd use us. You've done a work in us, and I pray that you continue to use us to impact other people. I praise you and thank you in advance for the things you're going to do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.